across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And so, here we are, watching and waiting. But what are we waiting for? A little bit of light at the end of the tunnel? A little bit of common sense? A little bit of information? A little bit of confirmation? One thing is for sure, uh, the government's pleased that we should basically go nowhere, do nothing, see no one, and keep doing it for months and months and months are causing more than a few problems. This morning, we're joined by SDP leader William Clouston for an examination of just how we managed to get through the next few weeks without going completely and utterly insane, without being arrested and without somehow losing the civil liberties that we fought so long and hard for over centuries of history in this country, right? After all, when we hear that the police are being put under more pressure to challenge people out for a walk or a run or a bike ride, uh, it's really time that we started changing the language that they're using, don't you think? People who need to be outside are not lockdown refuseniks. People who have decided to take their children to a park are not lockdown refuseniks. And I'm afraid uh, they are being painted that way in certain newspapers, including the Times, which is published in this very building this morning. They are simply trying to get through a very difficult set of lockdown restrictions. And I want to hear from all of you uh, this morning, because, of course, you are the eyes and ears of the independent republic. You are the people uh, who tell us how you're feeling, what you're seeing, what you're hearing. For example, those two women in Derbyshire uh, that so many people have read about who went out for a walk near a reservoir and who got a by the police in two or three different numbers of police cars, right? Uh, they've had their fines rescinded. They've had their tickets taken away. Uh, apparently, they weren't in the wrong, as it turns out. Now, Matt Hancock uh, said that he was fully in support of the police uh, pressing charges against these women and giving them fines. But what does he say now? 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, Simon Calder joins us with news that the UAE and Dubai in particular have been removed from travel corridor status. So if you were hoping for a quick trip for half term, I'm afraid that's gone for a Burton. Plus, we'll find out just what you need to do if you're travelling back to the UK uh, and you need to get a test of one kind or another uh, before you're allowed in. We'll let you know what happens if you land at Heathrow Airport and you haven't had one. Plus, we'll catch up with David Buick on the promised financial bonanza that's coming from Rishi Sunak after this, apparently, uh, is all over, whenever the hell that is. 0344-499-1000. We'll also get an update from Roger Layton, uh, who's our favourite schools headmaster, on just where the schools are. It's a very mixed picture, it seems, out there. Uh, I've been getting lots of tweets from people over the course of the last few days, some of them uh, with people uh, saying the teachers are doing a great job, they're doing a grand job, they're going into their classrooms, they're working with kids uh, who are kids of key workers, but they're also doing Zoom lessons as well. Uh, we're also hearing from some teachers that they don't want to do Zoom lessons from their homes because it might be an invasion of their privacy, for heaven's sake. We'll also hear from Dr. Rakib Hassan uh, from the Henry Jackson Society. He's going to talk about Islamic terrorism in 2021 after Reading murderer Kairi Sadala was sentenced to prison for the rest of his life. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, there's plenty to talk about. There's plenty to discuss. We need your help, of course, today of all days, because we need to know precisely how uh, the police are actually handling what these rules are, what these guidelines are, what these laws are. Because it seems to me, uh, from what Matt Hancock said yesterday, uh, when he gave his press conference around about five o'clock from Downing Street, that there is a bit of a sort of um, a lot of confusion going on around what is actually admissible, uh, what is allowed. Uh, I couldn't believe, once again, the poor quality of the questioning by the journalists. People asking, are we allowed to do this? Are we allowed to do that? 
Can we walk over there? Can we stand over here? I mean, come on, get a backbone for God's sake, will you? Let's talk to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party, who has uh, previously announced that uh, his party is, of course, an anti-lockdown party. William, a very good morning to you. Morning. Great to be back on. Thanks. Great to uh, to speak to you again. I mean, you did sort of paint yourself as an anti-lockdown party. I mean, that's practically a dirty word now. Can you still call yourselves that? Well, the whole the whole question is moot now, Mike, because you know whatever we say, we're not going to change government policy. All we ever wanted, we never actually asked for very much. Mm. We just wanted government policy to be on a rational basis, and we wanted um, the cost benefit trade offs to be open and discussed. It seems that uh, the government, right from the start, and as I say, you're not going to change it now, right from the start, a whole series of policies have been put into action. Uh, the government assumed them to be cost-free because they haven't done the analysis mm. on it and they won't publish anything. And, and as you say, um, you know, the, the press questioning is trivial uh, and trite. I mean, you know, they're, they're, the press are more concerned with uh, two people walking in Derbyshire than they are um, concerned about the drag anchor effect of uh, a generational effect on, on, on you know, young people's opportunities. Mm. Uh, the effect that effect you know I mean I, I I'm pretty sure that the net effect of the government action since the start will has been basically to kick deaths uh, down the road mm. that's what they're doing now I, I've never argued for anyone to break the law and I wouldn't and I think largely people are obeying this lockdown and they should um, and, and the fact is you know 80 80 and 90 percent of people are very sensible yeah all they can uh, to assist, uh, and, and they should. But you know, it's a little. It's it's actually a distraction. Um, you know, to focus on cyclists and walkers is is trivialising the whole uh, thing. I think. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And the problem is as well that there is this new kind of overarching. Um, sort of puritanism, if, if for want of a better word, William, which seems to have pervaded all aspects of our society now, uh, which is not going to stop, really, um, unless somebody makes it stop. Because it seems to me that there's an awful lot of busybodies out there, you know, the curtain-twitching variety, um, who want to tell everybody else what to do, who want to tell everybody else how dangerously they're behaving, when, in fact, there isn't any evidence whatsoever to say, for example, that if I walk out of this building this afternoon and I don't put a mask on in the street that I am somehow putting anybody's life at risk. But there are people telling me that. Well, this is, is again, it's very, very trivial and not very intelligent. Um, just ask yourself the basic question. So, they, yeah, we have a lockdown of sorts, right? Yeah. But the economy is not locked down entirely. We have about roughly 10 million key workers turning up to work. Why? Because if they didn't, we wouldn't be able to get food supplies. Mm. Medical treatment wouldn't exist. Uh, you know, key workers, uh, children wouldn't, wouldn't receive an education. So, you know, I would ask, ask yourselves, what is more likely as a viral vector, the 10 million people that have to turn up to work and are turning up to work and largely work is indoors, or are we fussing about uh, Boris Johnson getting on his bike out in the open mm. where, for all intents and purposes, he's not uh, endangering anyone? And remember, you know, the prime minister nearly died. Yeah. You know, and it, I would I would think it's entirely sensible for him to get on a bike. I mean, I get on a bike. I I took the trouble of reading the uh, the regulations myself. Right. Um, you know, it says locality. Locality. What is a locality? I go out on the bike. You know, probably every two days. Uh, a normal trip for me is something like 20, 20 miles. Yeah. You know, maybe 20, 20 odd miles. A loop of about an hour or so. 
That's reasonable. Yeah. Where is that power taken? It's taken in southwest Northumberland, which is where I live. Right. So, you know, what can you say? I mean, I, I, I think a lot of this is just, we do like trivial stories. We yeah. like, you know, the, the major outbreaks when these, when, when that have been reported, sadly are in, in, in care homes still, are still happening in factories and workplaces. And, and what are we to do? You know, you're going to say people can't go to supermarkets to get food. Well, are I mean, we, the logic, we, the logic of the people who are currently ordering everybody to stay at home <laughs> is that actually the most dangerous place where you can catch COVID is a hospital. Now, by their logic, you should shut the hospital. But obviously, that would be ridiculous. You would never do that. But that's where it all is, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's trivialisation. I wish the press would ask, get, you know, from the very, very start, they needed to think a little bit more widely and ask some more intelligent questions of the government because I still think, I mean, I, the, the point I made at the start, Mike, is this is moot because no one is going to uh, change public policy now. The three the, We know the three reasons why that's the case. You have a new strain, it's virulent. Uh, the winter wave in aggregate underneath the, 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 the graph will be probably worse than the first. That's very serious. Mm. And the vaccination rollout's there. And, and let's just also give a little bit of praise where it's due. A lot of the vaccine rollout, we're ahead of many countries. Mm -hmm. That's a very good thing. We need to be positive about that. And so the chance of public policy being changed now in sort of midstream is, is zero. But this, I think a lot of this will, will come out in the inevitable inquiry. Mm -hmm. There will be an inquiry about public policy in relation to the pandemic. And uh, I think a lot of government policy will, will, will be found wanting. Yes. Um, and I, you know, but I think also, William, it's worthwhile, and I appreciate what you're saying, that just because they won't change public policy now doesn't mean that we should stop questioning it. And it doesn't mean that we should stop um, being critical of it when we think we can be critical of it. And I'm, I'm like you. Uh, I'm very glad that the vaccine programme is ahead of most other countries in the world. I'm very happy that uh, Britain played a massive part in even get, making those vaccines happen, which is also brilliant, right? I'm also quite happy to go along with whatever the rules are, providing the rules do not get ridiculous, right? The rules that I have to now wear a mask when I'm in my office. I understand that and I come to work and I uh, have respect for my colleagues and therefore I will wear the mask. The problem is, is if they start telling me I have to wear a mask when I'm driving in my own car on my own, I'm going to go, are you sure about that? You know, an and, I, and that does not make me some kind of criminal. No, it's an absurdity. And I, I, I'm very concerned about the atmosphere of public debate in this country. Mm. In a democracy, a modern democracy, you need sceptics. You need people to question things. Yeah. You need to ask uh, uh, the government and call the government to account. And basically, from the start, that's all we've ever been doing. Mm. We've never done anything. We've never advised anyone to do anything that would put anyone at risk. As I say, I think people should take utmost care in this in this time. You know, we're in the flu season, and the and the you know the, the virus is, is is probably still spreading. Yeah. So people need to be careful. But I, I, I didn't ask for much, Mike. I really haven't asked for very much from the start. Right. I just wanted a rational basis. Mm. I, I, I asked questions about <clears throat> how it is that, that you know, qualities, which is the rational way of uh, allocating healthcare, can sub can be you know priced at fifteen thousand pounds per year, and suddenly the cost is a million. I, mm. I you know, it would be odd if 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 uh, opposition politicians didn't ask questions about that. But the atmosphere of debate as you say, has suddenly turned a little bit nasty and yeah, scientists and other people and sceptics are being uh, demonised. And I think that's wrong. If you can't listen to an opponent's argument in good faith and, and give them the respect that they're making mm. the argument in good 
faith, we, we've got a problem. Yeah, and also more and more, I see this kind of polarisation uh, of people who say, well, um, if you question the government, obviously you must be some kind of COVID denier. You must be some kind of person that believes it to be a hoax. And, you know, there's no nuance anymore. It's not like, you know, you can actually believe that there is COVID because there is. It's not a question of believing in it. It's there. Uh, but you can also question the government's response to it because I think what we ought to be doing now, William, as well, is demanding from those uh, government ministers some kind of action plan, some kind of roadmap as to what their targets actually are. For example, you know, when do we start to ease the lockdown restrictions? Is it when um, the, the number of people going into hospital goes, starts to go down? Uh, does it have to reach a certain number? You know, do we need a, a numerical target? Yes, let's have all of that. But let's have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, they, they, it, it might be deemed rational to have a target of uh, loosening the, lock, the current lockdown, the national lockdown, when you've uh, vaccinated uh, X number of people, yeah. or X number of people across the population profile. Right. That might be rational. Of course, the government would say that, you know, it's all, and, and it, it is linked to the number of cases uh, at any particular one time. So it's probably a series of things. But certainly the government should start to give us some indication. I mean, if you've, if you've vaccinated the, you know, the bulk of the population above the age of 60, you would take out the vast uh, amount of uh, mortality. Now, well, is that enough for the government? Well, it's, it's, it's not even as bad as that. I mean, Matt Hancock said yesterday, 88% uh, of people um, who have died will be covered in terms of age by the new uh, four, first four tiers of the vaccination rollout. So by mid-February, yeah. supposedly, we will have vaccinated uh, the equivalent of the 88% of people who have died as a result of COVID. Yeah, no, that's very encouraging. And as I say, people, I mean, these are difficult months, you know, January, February, pretty bad anyway. But, you know, in a viral pandemic, it's, it's worse. And I, I think, you know, we need to think through the curve and, 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 and you know, be optimistic. And also, I, it's not a time to demonize people ask questions it's not you know it's not helpful at all um and and i think you know we should we should try and be more optimistic and and let's hope that the you know the vaccination rollout proceeds efficiently certainly the family members that i know have re received it and the family members that, that are helping administer it uh, say it is actually rolling out very efficiently and you know vaccinations have been taken on time and in the right place and uh, let's hope it continues and, and actually if it ends up being uh, a UK success story in this, uh, you know, let's celebrate it. I, 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 you know, poked a little bit of fun at the SNP yesterday on Twitter because I made the point, um, I don't want to be cruel, but basically the SNP had their wish and they were a fully fledged member state, independent member state uh, of the European Union. Of course, very few people would be being vaccinated in Scotland. So, uh, you know, good thing for the union. Yeah, well, exactly right. Well, exactly. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, that was it. Yeah, yeah. No, the point about, um, um, you know, the sort of the roadmap out of all of this is that, you know, we see um, certain sort of truisms being spouted now constantly by the government, uh, such as, for example, you know, they're talking about now making us stand two metres apart. Now, I've read all manner of different pieces of information about the spread of this virus. And what I've said to people who have asked me the question, well, what would you do if you were in charge, is I would find out where people are getting infected. Because surely yeah. that would be the first job of any scientific study, because you can then protect those people from being infected wherever the infection is. Now, if the infection is all around us, which I'm not sure it is, then they would presumably say nobody goes anywhere. Yeah, no, I mean, the, but they can't say that because it's incommensurate. It's, it's not possible. I mean, the, the thing they're not talking about is the thing that I said before, which is that, you know, for reasons of food supply, health, you know, police and, and organisation, you have to have a certain amount of the economy 
functioning. Mm. And that's where that I believe that's where the, the the bulk of the infections are taking place among the 10 million people that have to go to work. Now, remember that if people, if 10 million people go to work and they go back home, they're also coming into contact with other people. So the, the actual number of people that have to, unless you want to, you know, weld people into their houses mm. to save, you know, get it, stay there for a month i'm afraid this is the reality that's where the viral spread is is going to take place and you know you can look at any evidence you like i mean certainly the evidence of viral spread out in the outdoors with, with a, a any amount of wind uh taking place is, is is minimal and and a lot of what we see when you see uh, when i see people walking around um in northumberland out in the open countryside mm. on their own with masks on i'm afraid you're dealing with mania yeah. irrational mania there you're not dealing with anything sensible um and and again i mean the, it may be just it may be mike it may be very useful for the government to distract everyone with um with stories about walkers uh you know or or you know people having tea in leicestershire or the, the you know boris johnson going on his bike or people being arrested for sitting on a bench in the south coast it may actually be a displacement activity, a distraction, a, mm. a, a deliberate distraction from any more serious scrutiny of, of what they're doing. But again, there's going to be an inquiry one day and we'll find out. Uh, I think it's quite likely that some of us that were a little bit sceptical um, might, be, might, might, might be right. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because we've learned from various kind of hints that they've given without actually saying it in quite so many words that an awful lot of the sage advice um, has been affected by the behavioural scientists on SAGE, not actually the uh, the actual scientists, the people who think that they can tell us how we should be behaving and enti- entirely sort of constructing various reasons for making us behave in a certain way. There's no doubt in my mind that the government says things in order for us to behave in a certain way, and they don't like it when we don't. But it doesn't even do that very well, Mike. I mean, if you, from a behavioural science point of view, if you were trying to influence people for positive action... Uh, to, to stay safe and abide by the rules. You do not do it by emphasising the odd case in Derbyshire or the odd right. case in the South Coast or Boris on his bike. I'm sorry. That's just very... that Even in the terms of behavioural science, that's very stupid. A behavioural scientist would say, make the point, which is true, that 85, 90% of people are obeying the rules. Yeah. I mean, that, you know, if you... If you I, I want to hear, if the police arrest... A rave, people organising a rave. That's good. I want to. Hit, I want those people arrested. Mm. You know, they shouldn't be doing that. But I think a lot of the rest of the stuff is just distraction. And and you know, I think they're just too negative. I mean, the press is always a bit bleeds at leads. But you know, it, it, most people, certainly you know, on the data and where I am, most people are behaving themselves. Yeah. Most people are public spirited. Absolutely. And the response has been very very positive. But you know, blaming um, viral spread on. On, on the ninety percent of people that are, are doing the right thing is not the not not true. I mean, I, I just think if again, if 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 the government, I'd like someone in the in the in the press conference to make the point that if the government's policy is to to keep those ten million key workers going, and if you want fair to be fair, they mm. must do. Yeah. Then you know that let's you know why don't they be honest? Why can't they be honest that that really? in all probability, is where the spread is taking place. What, you think it's supermarkets? Well, I I think it's, you've got hospitals, care homes, supermarkets, you know, uh, factories, Mm. you know, industrial outfits. But I haven't heard of any great numbers of supermarket workers uh, getting COVID, have you? No, that's true. I mean, that was was a point throughout the summer and people made that point. But the fact is, it's not people outside, Mike. Mm. It's amongst, it's amongst the 10 million 
people that are continuing to go to work and then are going home. And that must be, I mean, the spread in this, in this, at this time of year is indoors. Um, so, you know, that's the reality. And again, I would say if the government want to keep, and they're right to keep that element of the, of the economy open, if the government have that choice, they can't. It's just simply they're deluding themselves and the public if they think there won't be some viral transmission in that element mm. of the course. Of yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. William, great to talk to you as ever. Thank you very much indeed. William Clouston, the leader of the Social Democratic Party, always talks a great deal of sense. The party itself has always stood uh, as the anti-lockdown party. But as he says now, you cannot really raise a rail against the lockdown because the lockdown is here. The lockdown is happening. The lockdown may even get a bit worse, as Julie Hartley Brewer was telling me this morning. The bottom line for me uh, is that we need to know more information. If the government wants us to behave in a certain way, if the government is asking us to basically lock ourselves away and to do nothing other than to go to work if you're able to, uh, or uh, to take your children to a nursery if you're able to, to homeschool your children if you're able to, all of the things they want us to do, they need to show us why. And I think that is not asking too much. Why should we just blindly follow what the government tells us to do? You wouldn't do that in any other circumstance. You're asking me why we are asking questions. Well, that's exactly why we're asking questions, because we don't have the answers yet. Don't forget, uh, you can watch us as well as listening to us. We are live streaming on YouTube, on Facebook and on Twitter. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, time to say a very good morning, a very happy new year to Roger Layton. Roger, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. We haven't spoken for a while. Um, there's been quite a lot going on, I suppose, in the world of education uh, in the meantime. Um, I've been looking around uh, the country and talking to people on and off on social media and stuff um, since the schools were closed, effectively, coming back in January. Um, and it seems to be a very mixed picture, Roger. You know, there was pieces written at the weekend uh, that some teaching uh, unions were saying that it was unfair for teachers to be expected to, to Zoom do Zoom lessons live from home because it was some kind of invasion of privacy. Other teachers are apparently going into school classrooms and Zooming from there while also teaching, you know, the kids of, of key workers. Some schools are, are quite overburdened with, with kids who are vulnerable and kids of key workers. What, what's your view of the, of the general picture? Uh, the, the general picture is that there's far more pupils in school this time around than there were um, in the first main lockdown. Okay. Um, and that's quite dramatic in some places. So one of my primary schools, for instance, um, there were 15 key worker and vulnerable children. First time around, there's 112. Oh, wow. Time around. And yeah. what's, the, what's the reason for that change? I think it's firstly the government have widened the definition of key workers. Okay. So there are far more people eligible to send their child into school. Um, and they've even added, for instance, any child who doesn't have access to a laptop or a suitable place to work. Right. Now, in theory, that's great. We're in favour of that. We want children to be learning in the best possible environment. We want them in school if at all possible. Mm. The problem is if you've got that number of children in school and still the same number of staff available, you're really asking them to do two jobs at once, aren't yeah. you? You're asking them to teach and supervise the children on site and teach remotely the children at home. Yes, which is probably tough for an awful lot of teachers because obviously, you know, I've got great sympathy for teachers. You know, I, I, I know that it's a very difficult job. I certainly wouldn't want to do it. Um, uh, and and, and I, But I also have a great deal of sympathy for parents who are seeing their children sitting at home, staring at the four walls. Um, it seems to me at the moment, certainly in my experience, that the, 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 on, the, the, the online learning is better organised now than it was back in the spring as well. 
I absolutely agree with that. That's the other big change, I think. First time around, this was a shock to all of us. Um, we all had to run to catch up. Lots of teachers were not very tech savvy. And we'd not any of us heard of things like um, you're on mute. Yes. And is that a legacy hand, had we? You know. <laughs> no. Well, blimey, listen, I mean, if it wasn't for Zoom, I mean, we've literally become yeah. a television channel uh, over the course yeah. of the last kind of 10 months as a result of all of this. So so yeah. thank you to everyone who's taken part in that particular experiment. But I mean, it does seem to be a mixed picture as well. And I don't know whether it's sort of council by council or, or area by area, but clearly some uh, schools are doing better than others, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, I, and I'm, I'm sure that is true. And sometimes it will be resources. Sometimes it'll be how big or small is the school. Um, sometimes it'll be, you know, how well set up were they before this all hit? Mm. Did they have good networks, good um, internet connection, even those sorts of things. But I think the overall standard and the baseline has, as you said, has hugely improved from the first time around. Um, we've learned very quickly. And I think most parents are now very pleased with the reception that they're getting and the, the resources they're getting. I don't know if you picked up on this story, but um, Gavin Williamson, the education secretary, suggested that parents not happy with the provision at home should contact the inspectors, Ofsted. Um, Ofsted were then contacted by thousands of parents but to praise their schools. They were inundated with praise from parents. Now, I'm not saying there won't be examples where schools could be doing better, but overall, I think they're doing a great job. Yes. And I mean, as far as you're concerned, what's your view on the kind of um, efficacy, uh, one way or another, uh, regardless of how many busy schools there are, uh, of keeping kids off and for how long before it starts to be difficult for them because I know from my own uh, again all I can do is talk about my own children um, I think it's really hard for them not to see their friends you know not to be able to really uh, mingle with anyone else not to have any kind of sociability because after all school is of course about learning but it's also about socialization isn't it it is and we are very worried about that across the profession obviously those who are most vulnerable um, who are not in the best um, home circumstances are the ones we're most worried about. But yeah. it's true for all children, isn't it? Um, and you can never completely recover that time they've lost. So mm. we're all desperate to get people back into school properly as soon as possible. Mm. What I would say is, and it, it relates, I think, to, to something you said earlier, which is we're, we're all desperate for a return date, yes. a target. Mm. But we'd rather, I think, from our side, have a really realistic target that's almost certain to be able to be met yes. rather than an over-optimistic one that has to be stretched out further. Yeah. So, for instance, I think probably most of us are pretty clear that we're probably not going to be back in school properly till Easter. Yes, and I think that I sounds think about be right. Really, so. Yeah, I think it'd be really helpful for the government just accept that, tell us that now, mm. and then we can all plan for that. Now, if it gets brought forward and we can come back earlier well we'll all be joyous and happy won't we but saying half term at the moment february but yeah. then probably having to extend it is not helpful yeah because i mean what i was saying to one of our last guests was that now that there's a vaccine it's a little bit easier to predict the future isn't it because once you've got Absolutely. vaccinations rolled out to a certain level you can then say okay now it's all right to go back to school i mean i don't know where you stand on the, on the vaccination of teachers but i mean it would seem to make sense to me to vaccinate the teachers ahead of a lot of other people as well 
totally agree. Um, the problem at the moment is, you know, limited supplies, limited availability, limited um, staffing to deliver the vaccine. So I do understand that the most clinically vulnerable had to be done first. But um, I mean, I heard government minister this morning say that once those initial tranches of, you know, the over 85s, the over 80s, over 70s have been done, then teachers should be considered as one of the next priorities in in the key worker list. And right. I think that'd be really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and as far as the exams go, I think I'm right in saying, because, I mean, it's not easy to keep up with all of the various developments that have happened. I think I'm right in saying that, uh, that GCSEs and A-levels are now not going to happen this year. Uh, they're going to once again be kind of judged, but this time not by an algorithm, by the teachers themselves. I mean, what's the effect, do you think, on kids who don't actually take an exam and who get just given an, uh, a grade? Well, first thing I'd say about that is we're still not clear exactly what the process is going to be. Mm. And this is another example of failure to plan properly in advance. Um, everyone knew that it was a potential possibility that we wouldn't have exams again this year yeah and there have been months therefore for the government to come up with some fully worked up plans and ideas on this what mm. we've had is the announcement that they won't take place as normal and then a period of consultation and thinking and planning to come up with an alternative mm. not really good enough is it because you know we're not that far away from the summer now um, and schools and students still unclear about exactly how this is going to work yeah so i to answer your question, I think pupils, students are very concerned. They're very worried about how this is going to work. And the, the, the sooner we can have clarity over this, for everyone's sake, yeah. the better. Yeah, because, I mean, again, from my own experience, you know, when I talk to my kids, they're kind of like, they're not really very sure about anything at the moment because they haven't mm. really got the wealth of experience that, that, say, you and I have got of, of you know, going through things that weren't great for a while or right. living through right. the 70s, for example, which I always tell mm. them about. And I always say, listen, we used to sit there uh, when can candlelight uh, for, <laughs> yeah. you know, most of the day. And we had one hour yeah. of electricity in the evening. They look at me like I'm talking absolute madness, you know. Yeah. But, but, you know, for them to not be sure of themselves or what their kind of structure is around them, I think it's really, really bad. It, it is, it is. And um, we do our best in, in, in education to reassure them, um, to keep them on track, to keep them motivated. Mm. And I suppose our fundamental message is, look, exams or no exams, the important thing is to carry on learning. Because in the end, the exam is just a, you know, it's just a certificate. Um, it's what you're actually doing that counts. Yes. That is then going but to isn't the exam, what you need. But, but isn't the exam, yeah. Roger, also quite a useful tool in preparing people for, or preparing kids for what comes later in life? You know, because, yes, it's uh, yeah. a little bit, yeah, a bit stressful, but that's good. You know, they need to experience yeah. a little bit of stress. They need to worry about things. I think that's not a bad thing either. But without that, there's kind of nothing to worry about. Um, we're trying to not give that message, Mike. Why? Um, but, well, be, no, we're, no, we're trying to say you should still be worried. Right. Okay. okay? That's All what right. we're saying. Okay. Um, well, what should they be worried think, about? Oh, well, don't <laughs> think, no exam. So, hey, look, I, I can play Fortnite um, most of the week and not worry too much about my work. Yeah. We're saying the opposite. We're okay. saying although there may not be a, um, a traditional exam, what you are learning or not learning now is going to have an impact, as you say, on the next stage of your life, whether that's, you know, moving from GCSE to A-level or A-level to university yeah. or any of those to work. 
what you learn now is going to have a huge impact. Right. So we're trying to keep the motivation going, even if there's not going to be a traditional sure. exam. And what about the teachers themselves? Because a lot of people rail, rail on the teachers and say they're all lazy, you know, good for nothing, sit at home complaining, have loads of holidays. I mean, I'm going to do something surprising here, Roger, and stick up for them uh, and say to you, what about uh, the teachers and how is their sort of mental health? Because without being able to work in the traditional way, that must also be a struggle. Absolutely. And I think they've been magnificent across the piece. They really have. Uh, they've had to learn new skills quickly. Um, they've had to, in many senses, work twice as hard as normal. Um, they've really stepped up to the plate. Um, there's been a lot of volunteering to um, do extra rotors and extra work and extra supervision. I've not come across a single example across my 12 schools of staff not willing to um, cooperate, collaborate mm. and get through this together. It's been a really joint effort. Yeah. And has there been much COVID in your experience in the schools? I mean, my again, my, my own uh, uh, kids' school um, has had one or two teachers having to take time out, a couple of pupils getting it, a couple of people being sent home, you know, a bit of isolation going on. But it hasn't been uh, massively disruptive. Um, it, it's gone in waves. Most of the autumn was quiet, mm. but as we came up to Christmas, um, there was quite a, a spike of cases amongst pupils and staff, yeah. particularly in secondary schools. Uh, and that's when the government quite rightly started talking about introducing mass testing in schools. Now, that didn't actually get off the ground. That really, seems because... to have been sort of forgotten about now, doesn't it? Well, it was overtaken by the closure. Yeah. Uh, but it's still it's still there as part of the plan moving forward as we get back in into operation that both staff and students, particularly the older students, to be tested on a weekly basis with right. these lateral flow tests, the quick ones. Right. That's the plan moving forward. OK, a couple of quick texts for you just to have a, a, a different view. Chris in Western Supermare says, my daughter's school has got the kids uh, who go in all on computers in the school. So the class teachers only have to do an online lesson and other teachers and staff do the supervision part, uh, which is good. Um, and I've got this from Dugsy, Amanda rather. Uh, my daughter is in her final year of A-levels. Her school refused to do Zoom or video learning for child protection issues. How is that when the children don't have to appear on camera? And certainly my own son, he doesn't have to appear on camera when he's on a, a Zoom lesson. Mm. Um, so presumably that's not shouldn't really be an issue, should it? I'm surprised at that. There are tried and tested ways around the safeguarding issues mm. now. That might have been a problem when we were first doing this, when we were making it up as we went along. But there are protocols in place that should that shouldn't be a problem anymore. OK, so, I mean, yeah. are you looking for if I was able to put a question for you to uh, say, uh, Gavin Williamson, um, you'd basically like to be told, let's just get a date put down in the diary as to when we can reopen. Let's do some proper advanced planning and let's start with a realistic um, date that we can all work towards and all plan towards. Yeah. Stop being, we all want them to be back as soon as possible, but there's no point in over-optimistic um, expectations which then are dashed at the last minute. Right. We need to be able to work proactively, not reactively. 
I guess the one piece of good news we can say is there won't be any half-term trips to skiing holidays in uh, in Italy this year, right? <laughs> no, no, that's true. That's all gone for right. a year. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. Right. Roger, listen, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Roger Layton, Chief Executive at Partnership Learning, which is an academy trust that oversees nine different schools uh, in London. Um, and he, I think, like a lot of people listening to this, including parents, by the way, would just like to have some form uh, of certainty about when it's likely that your kids will be able to properly go back to school. And I agree with Roger. I think it's more likely to be after Easter than it is going to be after half term. But I'll take your views. And listen, by all means, do tweet us and text us as well. 87222. Uh, tweet us at Talk Radio. Uh, let us know what's going on in your world. Let us know what your school's doing uh, and how your children are coping uh, with what is quite a difficult situation, I would have thought. This is Talk Radio. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbird styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Superlight Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Superlight Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And, because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I think I'm right in saying this is the first time I've spoken to Simon Calder this year, so I'm going to say a very happy new year. Mr Calder, welcome back. Uh, Mike, let me be the first to wish you the happy new year. I am the first, aren't I? No, no, you're not, actually. But, but not your first, okay. uh, first one this hour, since midday. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, look, um, uh, just to uh, make sure that you're, you're happy with this, I'm taking my daily exercise with you i have walked from my house i'm now in um uh, beautiful kensington i'm actually going to nip into the park while i talk to you oh very um, nice and, and so, so therefore i think i am i am um uh, complying fully with all requirements but look during your build-up when you said i'll be able to tell you precisely what people who are abroad now will be able to do i will not be able to tell you that because Nobody knows precisely what they've got to do. Ah. Um, should we start with Should we start with this test before travel, or do you want to start with yes? Dubai? Yeah, let's start okay. with the test before travel because we've got uh, people abroad currently who are interested in knowing what they have to do um, if they're going to arrive here after four a.m. on Friday. Okay, so here's the score. Um, just over a week ago, the government said um, that uh, in in response to the sort of mounting clamour for people wanting to know why people were coming into this country without being testing, tested, that something they, they kind of not uh, uh, regarded as any use um, for the past nine months was suddenly going to become a really good idea. So they say that, and pay attention because there's going to be a test later, Mike, um, they say you must have a test uh, and you turn up at your airport or your train station or your ferry port 
with that test showing that in the 72 hours before departure you have had a negative covid test now that sounds sort of quite quite ambitious and quite annoying if you're in um, uh, somewhere lovely like uh, for example dubai mm. but you've got to get it organized you've got to pay for it you turn up it's got to be the right test but we don't know what sort of test it is yet mm. unbelievable it's uh, here we are tuesday lunchtime there's going to be people getting on planes on, on thursday evening and they don't know what sort of test they're going to have to get. I've been obviously trying to find out, but it's um, yeah. it's, it's looking pretty tricky. Well, and also for a lot of people, if they're away on holiday, I'm not sure whether a lot of people are away on holiday, but say, for example, you're in somewhere like Grand Canaria, um, you know, it might not be that straightforward finding a place to get a test, one. Two, it could be quite expensive, um, 150 quid, something like that. And if there's maybe more than one of you, I mean, you know, it suddenly becomes a rather expensive trip. Yes, look, uh, people in the in the Canaries are actually in relatively good shape because there is actually an official Canaries government list of associated uh, uh, approved testing centres. Mm. And if I were the UK government, I'd just say, yeah, if, if, if they're recommending them, then I'll go with that. Right. It's where you're, where, where you're in um, uh, maybe some of the Caribbean islands. And the government has actually given an extra six days to people in Antigua, in Barbados right. and in St. Lucia to get the tests done because they say they recognise it's not going to be particularly easy for them to uh, yeah. To, to get those done. So, so is this is this then um, applicable to every single country? There's no uh, favours being done for any particular sort of travel corridors? Uh, no, uh, exactly right. Of course, um, uh, quarantine changed overnight for um, people coming back from the UAE. Yeah. But even if you're coming back from a quarantine-free uh, country, uh, like Australia, uh, you're still going to have to produce a, a negative test. And... Uh, there's all sorts of other complications about, um, uh, you know, whether it's counted from the time you leave uh, Australia or the time you leave, say, mm. Dubai, where you change planes on the way back. And of course, if you change planes in Dubai now, that's going to taint your your quarantine status, so you will have to self-isolate. Yes. So many more questions than answers. I'm expecting, well, I hope to get some more answers later today. And um, uh, hopefully, Mark, uh, later on, will be able to talk about that. It may even be that the Home Secretary, um, in her briefing, will, will tell mm. us uh, yes. more about so, it. So, so just to kind of double, to double check with you, if there is a previous kind of travel corridor like Antigua, um, you'll need a test that proves you're negative, but you won't need to quarantine. Still. Uh, uh, correct. But, right. but the vast majority of locations, of course, you do need quarantine. And, I uh, gosh, I am... Now, the, the travel industry started getting quite angry about last, last April. Mm. It's got more and more and more angry. And now they're just saying, what? Yeah, we've been calling for testing before travel, but we wanted it to be an alternative to quarantine. Yes. Not as well as. This is two belt and braces. And um, it's difficult to see anybody, because the government has not given any kind of end date or even a when we're going to review it, it's very difficult to see anybody wanting to commit to any kind of travel because who, frankly, wants to go to the lovely Canaries? If you're going to need a test before you go there, which the Spanish government requires, then another one when you come back. And uh, perhaps the most absurd part of this is if you're off on a quick business trip somewhere and those are still allowed, um, unlike uh, any kind of leisure travel, uh, you could actually have your test before you leave the UK. Mm if that's less than 72 hours so you would 
have a test to leave the UK in order to come back into the UK. Um, it shows you just how um, confusing this, uh, this picture is and um, how uncertain these times are for travellers. The only kind of, I guess, silver lining is that it won't affect too many people because um, nobody should be travelling for right. fun these days. Um, and the, the, the kind of, as it were, the, the last few plane loads of people who are in the uh, Caribbean, maybe they were lucky enough to get out just before this latest lockdown, um, they will be coming back quite soon. So hopefully it won't affect too many people. Mm. But no. a complete muddle. It really is. Um, and what happened to Dubai then? Was it something to do with that Celtic football club trip? Because Celtic went there um, to play. I, I'm not sure if it was to play a game, but it was to have a sort of a break, a midweek, a midwinter break. And then they came back to Scotland uh, and one of their number uh, turned out to have been COVID positive. Uh, yes, warm weather training was the uh, last oh, yes. I heard, right. uh, which I think we can all do with, actually. <laughs> I could do with um, some I, of that. Mate, mate, yes. Uh, so, yeah, what an absolute disaster. Um, the Scottish government on Sunday night um, came out and said, actually, uh, anybody who's been anywhere near Dubai mm. for the past 10 days, you have to um, go and self-isolate now because... Right. Uh, uh, we think that you're quite likely to be carrying mm. coronavirus because it's absolutely right then. Mm. It is squarely a problem in um, uh, in Dubai, but the whole of the UAE has now been put on the naughty yes. list. Well, do you so know, it's we... funny that we're talking about it because uh, you may know uh, my daughter works there and she came back here for Christmas. Um, yes. And she was saying that the place was absolutely chock-a-block with Brits uh, who, when the uh, when the opening of the corridor happened, they all just went out there and partied. Oh, of course they did, because um, if you remember, it was November, suddenly we were told, yep, you can go to um, the UAE at right. the time. The Canaries had just lost their travel corridor status. So loads of people decided they were going to go out there. Um, the airports, the planes have been really, really busy. I mean, yesterday there were eight uh, wide-bodied planes coming in from... Dubai to Heathrow alone, right. other ones to Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow. So it's it's by far the kind of busiest destination. Yeah. And now all those people are going to find that they, uh, I mean, the, the uh, first BA flight this morning missed the deadline by two hours. So all those people, all the others coming in today and everyone else who's there who's mm. coming back is now going to have to self-isolate. And furthermore, if they're coming back from Friday onwards, They've got to run around um, Dubai finding somewhere to get a test. Yes, I know. And that'll be probably a big queue as well now because there'll be so many of them trying to do it. Now, you'll be delighted to know that I'm going to give your newspaper a plug here, Simon, because I've just been um, alerted to a story that The Independent's put out. Apparently, not only can you not travel abroad, but the Royal Mail have issued a list of places, 28 places in Britain, uh, which are so badly infected with COVID that they're not actually delivering the post there. And they include several parts of London, including Bow, uh, including several parts. Enfield is in there, Highbury, Hornsey, uh, Ilford, Lewisham. Um, where else? Upper Holloway, Wandsworth, not far from where you are now. Uh, plus a whole bunch of other stuff, places. Margate included as well, uh, which is pretty bad news if you're waiting for um, a letter from the NHS to say that you can come and have a vaccination, I would have thought. That is just bizarre. And uh, look, I, I hats off to my uh, excellent colleagues. It seems absolutely mad. And look, Mike, you and some of your lovely listeners will, like me, have done the Christmas post. OK. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's a pretty much a one way transaction. 
you're not not a lot of interacting with people. You're just going through putting putting letters in their letter boxes. I can't see that that's going to be too much of a, a COVID risk. But obviously, they know something that that, that we don't. Mm. So, I think, I, think uh, yes, I can safely uh, say that you once again have captured the mood of the nation, Simon, as I hear <laughs> ducks quacking in the background. <laughs> there we are. And there's the uh, beautiful Albert Memorial at the Al- Albert Hall um, waiting for your next uh, live performance. Yes. Now, I've got a, a question for you from a listener, if you don't mind. Uh, Vic has sent me this. He said, could you please ask Simon how he sees the world eventually opening up? For instance, I reckon COVID-free New Zealanders will still have to take the vaccine. Uh, surely they can't stay isolated forever. And I was raising this point actually earlier in the show. You know, tourism, for me, seems a very long way off now, doesn't it? Oh, look, it, it's all just, if you If you're looking at going to New Zealand on a holiday or to Australia or to um, large parts of Asia, including Thailand, Vietnam, um, then uh, yeah, put, put those thoughts on hold because they don't need us, frankly. I mean, Thailand um, has as many cases uh, uh, it, ever since the crisis began as the UK has in three hours mm. new cases. So right. that gives you some idea of the magnitude of it. But um, countries that are tourism dependent, and that's why the, the Caribbean, of course, has been opening up in a kind of limited way. But mm. uh, uh, Portugal, Spain, Greece, they are absolutely dependent on tourism. They will want to strike the right balance. And of course, it's all to do with the uh, vaccine. Once the UK um, has its most vulnerable people vaccinated, and once the same has happened in those countries, then things are going to relax. The death rate, we hope, is going to come down. A uh, number of people in hospital, likewise. And so things will feel an awful lot um, better. But when it's going to happen, I simply don't know. I'm hoping to get away back end of March. I've I no idea where to. Right. But frankly, I'll go anywhere which will happen. It's a bit like, <laughs> a bit like you and pubs. That's very harsh. I don't know why you would make that uh, analogy at all. I mean, I won't go to just any pub, you know, Simon. It has to be a hostelry of some renown. Exactly, yes. Um, so so we just, you know, it's just a question of being opportunistic, um, obviously being responsible, and um, then hopefully things will, will build back. But the travel industry is just saying, look, yeah. unless we get some clarity, unless we can kind of get a half-decent um, early summer, um, it, it, it's going to be curtains for us. Well, I'm thinking not just about travel abroad for us, but people coming here from abroad. I mean, because I was saying, again, not that long ago on the show, oh. you know, this time last year, London was full of tourists because it was becoming actually a, a, yeah. becoming slightly annoying, actually, as a uh, as a local around the London Bridge area because you literally couldn't walk on the streets. They were so busy. Oh, yeah. Well, um, the UK um, uh, inbound um, tourism has been... Um, completely destroyed, obviously, because right. uh, you're going to need quarantine. You're going to need a test now. So there's no nobody coming in at all. I mean, in the current lockdown, that is appropriate. But even when things are eased, um, who's going to come to Britain? Um, you know, we've got our, our own special variant. And, of course, uh, Brexit, although there's no immediate effect on uh, people coming in from Europe, although quite a lot of them seem to think it is. Um, from October, the UK government is doing all it can to um, uh, put people off coming here by saying, ah, yes, we don't accept um, identity cards anymore. So tell you what, if you want to come to Britain, go to the post office, pay 100 euros, go and queue up and uh, 
and get a passport. So uh, yes, that's, uh, but will we be taking away their ham yeah, sandwiches I mean, like uh, like the Dutch were today for for, for our lorry drivers? <laughs> uh, well, uh, yes. Careful with those snacks out there. Right. Um, um, I think cheese is okay. It's just ham they don't like. No, it's not. No, 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 no dairy products. Nothing which has been anywhere near a cow. Anything. In, with meat in it and any fruit apart from and forgive me i'm going to miss one or two of them out you can bring in bananas you can bring in coconuts you can right. bring in durian which are the smelliest fruits in in the world uh, but you can't bring in an apple from kent and the same applies if you're going to greece or if you're going to northern ireland so um i mean imagine that, imagine the state of affairs when you have to smuggle in your ham sandwich into uh, into uh, uh, mainland europe it's a shocking state of affairs well, well, yeah, you, you're not allowed to do it. I mean, we we signed up to this. Yeah, it's not not a surprise. Um, we we uh, decided that we would become a third country with the rules. Yes. But, um, well, I mean, it's easy. Ham it's ham easy to get around. So I mean, you just buy a ham sandwich when you get there, don't you? Brilliant, brilliant. You, you see, know. that's the you see, of, yeah, that's the kind of Brexit thinking that you need uh, when you're worried about this kind of madness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> brilliant stuff. Listen, um. Uh, and do you think, final question, Simon, and I've enjoyed your walk around Kensington uh, Park there. Very nice. Um, do you think there will be any travel companies or airlines, um, Qantas, I know, said this in the beginning, uh, that might say, uh, if you're going to fly with us, you need to have taken the vaccine? Well, it all depends on um, how quickly the vaccine gets rolled out and crucially how well certified they are. I mean, uh, clearly you will have uh, decades before you're entitled to get your your vaccine a young man like you yes but i uh, believe i'm in I'm, i believe i'm in tier eight i think for the vaccine yeah, well yeah yes oh uh, yeah um anyway when you get your vaccine i understand and a few people have showed me their cards doesn't it doesn't look anything like an international certificate and therefore um if people do need a certificate to either uh, more likely i would say to go to a country rather than to get on an air, aircraft um then yeah, what sort of proof is required? And mm. at the moment, people are just getting their jabs and there is no thought for, well, sooner or later, somebody's going to need to uh, want to go abroad. And it's much better if they have a, mm. a properly recognised certificate rather than the absurd situation of someone having to pay to get another vaccine yes. in order to be able to go abroad. Or so, another test, um, yeah. It's all very, very expensive, isn't it? It certainly is. It will get better, Mike, but it's uh, taking quite a long time. Yes, that's the frustration. I, man, I think I can't remember the first year, first time uh, in, in, in many years that last year I didn't actually go abroad at all. I managed to make four days in the Isle of Wight, which was quite nice, you know, but it wasn't quite the same. Um, that's, uh, yes, and abroad misses you, Mike. I know I, they I, do. I've, I've they do. To, yeah. They miss my money. Yeah, it's very Same true. Your, 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 your personality, yes. your charm, yes, I think, is indeed. Uh, as well. Indeed. Yes. Also, I travel with a huge entourage of children and people, so, you know, <laughs> it's always very good. Simon, delightful to see you. Uh, I'm also told uh, by Marta, the producer, that we spoke last Tuesday, so we must have already both forgotten that we'd, <laughs> mis- we'd wished each other a happy new year already. <laughs> you know, but, nice. hey, listen... <laughs> It's very yes. our normal. Normally, our conversations are much more memorable, but there we are. We must have been hung over, possibly. But listen, thank you very much, Simon Calder, there from the Independent. Fascinating list, by the way, of places where the post office is saying that they will not now deliver post to because there's too much COVID in the area. I mean, what if you're supposed to be getting something important from the NHS, like an appointment to go and see them for some uh, reason or other, or to get a vaccine? What is going on in this country? 
Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's time now for our homeschooling section, which we started, of course, way back in March last year uh, when we realised that so many children weren't able to go to school and were having to be uh, educated at home. Uh, There wasn't an awful lot of online learning going on back then, it seems to be, I seem to remember, but it's a bit better now. But nevertheless, uh, we've continued with it because not least uh, because it's actually uh, been quite educational for all of us, uh, learning about things that perhaps we didn't know. We're going to talk now to Cara Gamble, uh, financial journalist, blogger uh, at your best friend's guide to cash.co.uk. And we're going to talk about saving money, uh, which is something we could all probably learn a thing or two about. Cara, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Happy New Year. Same to you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, not at all. I mean, uh, I suppose uh, you and I have had these conversations before about trying to kind of um, give your children a sense of of money uh, so that it doesn't just uh, apparently come at them like growing off trees and coming at birthdays and Christmas and that kind of thing. Um, You've got a, a plan for sharing jars and spending and saving. Tell us about it. Well, when it comes to teaching our kids about manners and safety, most parents, we feel like we've got it under control. But when it comes to teaching our kids about money, we don't really know where to start. Mm. Um, And we're the biggest influence on our children's spending habits. Um, According to the Money Advice Service, by the age of seven, how kids will spend their money as adults is already um, ingrained in them. So I have a seven-year-old. And I thought, well, she seemed to think that my debit card was a magical, um, you know, producer of cash. (laughs) I thought, yeah. And I thought, how can we go about this? So I happen to have a bunch of glass jars um, that I had big plans when I was on maternity leave to make chutney. It never happened, obviously. And so what I did is I thought, right, let's do three jars, one for sharing one for spending and one for saving. Okay. And so then when she gets money, what she can do is she can put, she can break it up and she can put it into the different jars as she sees fit. And so as one jar is for saving, I'm not talking about, you know, creating a pension fund, but it's about maybe saving for a scooter or some kind of bigger ticket item for a child. And then um, spending is if she wants to buy a magazine when we're in town and the, and the sharing jars to kind of give back to the community. Yeah. We have some- money yeah it's good isn't it i mean the trouble with a lot of it at the moment as well though is it's very much a kind of a digital thing now money isn't it a lot an awful lot of money doesn't really ever change as my kids quite often will if they get some cash for a birthday or a christmas or something they'll come to me and say you know can i give you this cash and will you put some (laughs) into my bank account so they can spend it online right yeah well and especially during um you know the restrictions due to the pandemic um my seven-year-old obviously is losing a lot of teeth at the Mm. moment and uh, we were standing in the queue at the co-op one day and she said, you know, it's a really good time to get cash from the tooth fairy because right. nowhere will take it. <laughs> so every time we go and she wants to spend some money, I would be paying for it and then she would reimburse me. Okay. And it didn't it's important, isn't it, to do that so that you do not give them the impression that you just pay for everything and all they've got to do is ask. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing is, is that with kids, they don't really have the concept of how hard we have to work for money. Mm. Um, And unless we kind of show them how much, um, you know, what that means, they have no idea. So just like I would show my daughter when she was little, I would say we have to leave in 15 minutes. I would say that's one episode of her favorite show. And Mm. that would put that into kind of easy to understand um, terms for her age. So I think it's important to start talking early, often, and, you know, just explain how we actually get, 
you know, why we go to work. Yeah. And if you have a saving jar, can you convince them that they can sometimes put something in every day or, or is that difficult? Well, she doesn't seem to have that much cash, to be honest. But when she gets pocket money or tooth fairy money, I tend to um, give it to her in small um, amounts, like right. various coins, so that it's easy for her to put, you know, certain coins in each individual jar. Mm. Interestingly, I was looking at her spending jar, and that's the only one with any notes in it. Right. Um, so she does seem to know where she wants to put her money. Right. But the great thing is, is that with she's actually it's actually worked. You know, when you do something parenting and you think mm, this is not going to work, mm. it actually does. Yeah. And once she went on a school trip and um, the kids, they said, bring, you know, a couple of quid for an ice cream. She said, I didn't think some of the kids in her class would have any money for an ice cream. So she dumped out her sharing jar into her lunchbox. And so she could buy some ice creams for the kids that maybe didn't have any oh, money. That's nice. I've actually got a, a couple of tweets here. One from Kay, who says, I have saved in jars all my life. Last time it was shiny pounds. I was busy putting coins in. And my husband said we should count it. It was 840 pounds. <laughs> Uh, and, he wow. made, and he made me put it towards the mortgage. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> if you do that. I mean, I used to, funnily enough, I used to do that, a similar thing, not with a jar, but I had a, I opened up a little building society account when I was living in Scotland. Every time I appeared on the BBC, I would just put the cheque into it, you know, and I used mm -hmm. it as a kind of a flying fund because whenever I wanted to fly over to the US to see my kids, um, I would just go and get the money from there. And it's amazing how quickly it builds up, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and the, the idea is is what it's good to show that if you you can save in small increments, and suddenly you end up with a large amount of cash, which you know, so you don't have to save huge amounts every single time. It mm. all adds up. Yeah, it does. And what about giving um, your kids kind of jobs to do, which they then get re they get paid for? I mean, I always think that's quite a good way of making them learn about money as well. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I grew up in a house where we had to do chores every Friday as being just because we were part of the family. Yeah. But if we did additional things, we could get some uh, pocket money. And so what I've started to do with my daughter, because I mean, we're home all the time now, that's all we ever do, is I've got her doing things like putting the leaves in the green bin or valeting my car and giving her a couple of pounds here and there. And, you know, it. she sometimes says, oh, this takes so long. I'd like to make some more money. Mm that's not an equal job. So while maybe making her bed is something she has to do, organizing her closet is a little bit different, but mm. she's starting to realize that jobs that take a longer amount of time and more energy are actually the ones that she wants to be paid more for. Yes. So. I think a sliding scale is all is all well and good. As you say, it's just about preparing them really in a way, isn't it? How's, how's she dealing with uh, not having to get to school at the moment or is that, uh, or is she going? Uh, yeah, she's going actually, um, and um, yeah, really, she's really pleased about it. She wasn't too impressed at first because obviously she thought that her, you know, she could just sit and watch me work all day, um, but that's not necessarily how it would happen. But she, yeah, no, it's it's good. I think kids are so much more resilient than we think they are, and they kind of just go with the flow. Yes. Um, and I think as long as they look to us to see if we are how we're handling a situation, I always say, Do, does mommy look worried? If I'm not worried, then you don't need to. Right. So. Good. Very good lessons to learn. Cara, thank you very much indeed. Cara Gamble there, financial journalist, blogger at your best friend's guide to cash.co.uk. I think a lot of people, uh, and Pete amongst them, uh, have got jars of money. He says this, I have a jar in my kitchen that I always put pound coins in. I've just checked and there's nearly 300 quid in there. That's not bad. 
You've just counted £300 coins. Good for you. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.